Are you tired of your content not getting the reach it deserves? Change that at Grow With Video Summit. From May 23rd through the 25th, join industry leaders like Gary Vee, Ali Abdal, Patrick Bet David, Cody Sanchez, and more for strategies that will elevate your visibility and engagement. So go to summit.thinkmedia.com to secure your ticket. Just click the link in the description or go to summit.thinkmedia.com. If we think we are not enough, we're constantly going to feel not enough and we're going to act in not enoughness. The number one strategy is make a great piece of content. Like really think about how can I get all the things that I've worked in the previous videos to make one great video that people really want to hear from. And there's really six things that keep us feeling limited or less than our ultimate potential. Welcome back to the Think Media Podcast. I am super fired up for today's episode with Lewis House, who, if you haven't met him yet, he's a New York Times bestselling author, keynote speaker, and industry-leading show host of the School of Greatness. Three million YouTube subscribers. He's published over 1,500 episodes, and he's interviewed the likes of Jordan Peterson, Tony Robbins, Kobe Bryant, Mel Robbins, Jada Pinkett-Smith, Rob Derdick, Matthew McConaughey. I'm probably just scratching the surface. In this episode, we're going to be unpacking some of the lessons that he's learned growing a global brand that's impacted well over 500 million people, his YouTube tips, strategies that have led to over 366 million views, advice for getting great guests on your podcast, and then how do you develop the greatness mindset that will help you reach your goals on YouTube and in life and in business? Lewis, welcome to the show. My man, Sean, living the dream, baby. Thanks so much uh, for jumping on. We were just reflecting. We both turned 40 this year. And uh, I know that you're committed to giving wisdom and helping people live a better life, shift their mindset, shift their world. I'm excited to dive into your content creation tips, though, because you don't really talk about that kind of stuff. And I think you're going to be revealing some things that just normally don't get brought up. But take us back a little bit. The journey of building the School of Greatness podcast. When did you upload mm. the first episode? Audio. And then when did you upload the first episode video? Yeah. What's been the journey over the last year? I was just, uh, <clears throat> I just interviewed Rick Rubin, the uh, producer yesterday, and we were talking about this because he just launched his podcast and he's only doing audio right now. And I said, Hey, that's how I started out 10 years ago. And he goes, who is your first guest? And I said, Robert Green, the author of 48 Laws of Power. He goes, no way. I just had Robert Green on as one of my first guests for the launch of his show. So it's kind of an interesting to reflect. And I was like, you know, he's like, when did you start it? How did you start it? I said, I started it in my kitchen, you know, on a little, little table, uh, just mics. And uh, I used my iPhone for a couple of the first ones. So it wasn't like I did anything crazy or special. And he was saying, you know, I, I thought about, should I do video to launch and, and should I have a whole setup? And he said, that's the thing that holds a lot of people back as artists, as musicians, is them wanting to make it perfect as opposed to just kind of working on a demo and just starting and just getting it out there and refining it. So it's, I'm in the 10 year anniversary of the show. Um, yeah, like you said, 1500 episodes in, but I think I started, I don't know the exact date, but I think it was two, two and a half or three years in after doing audio. I remember just having a feeling like there weren't many podcasts 10 years ago in the first place. And I remember thinking to myself, video is just going to be a thing. Like a video is going to be big. I don't know how it's going to be big, but I feel like we should record these. And I had an interview with Tony Robbins. And I think that was the first 
interview that I recorded. I was just like, I need to hire someone to film this. I want to get it on video. I have no idea how we're going to use it, but let's just throw it up on YouTube. And the funny thing is for the first five years of doing video, it was all a play to drive back to the audio. It was just like, how do we get people to go watch and then go listen to the audio? Or how do I get clips on social media to drive people back to audio? About three years ago, I guess, right in the beginning of 2020, I said to myself, I don't know, maybe I had 900 videos on YouTube or 800 or 1,000. I don't know how many I had, but I had a lot. And um, I don't know why I did this, but I I never turned the ads on my YouTube channel um, until a few years ago because I was just like, eh, I, want, I just want to give people free value. I just want to help people. I don't want people to feel like they're being sold or something. And I definitely don't want some sleazy ads in front of my content because I just knew t- people would be targeting me in my content. And so for years, I never allowed for ads to be on the, the platform, the video platform. And then three years ago, I was like, well, let me just turn it on like a couple videos and see how it does. And I remember that first month, I think it made like five grand. And I was like, okay, it's interesting. What if I turn it on like 20 videos? And then it was like 20 grand. I was like, huh, okay, it's not nothing. That's like some money there. And I go, what if I just turn it on all the videos and like just push one button and let YouTube do its thing? And I don't know, after six months, it was like 50 grand a month or something like that. And then eventually it was like hundreds of thousands a month. And then my cat's going to join and, and chime in. But it was like hundreds of thousands a month. And I was just like, wow, this is like a real, real money, real revenue, real business just by putting up free content and helping people. And I was already doing it. I was already recording it for the audio. So it was just a natural thing to add it on YouTube. Now, I had kind of the benefit of, I don't know, eight years of a back catalog that I could automatically turn a switch on as opposed to having to make content to try to monetize and get views. So I was getting a lot of views organically because of the guests I had on, the content, the topics, and the brand over, I guess, eight years of video at that time. So I had a kind of a, a, a good back catalog that really helped me. And it was also, but I remember thinking, you know, I don't know if you ever played this game, but I like went backwards and said, oh, all these views that I did have, how much money could I have made had I turned it on five years ago? And I don't know, it was millions. So, and I probably would have been more intentional about YouTube also. I was, it was the last thought. It was like, just throw it up. Who cares what the thumbnail is? Just put the person's name up there and that's it. So had I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a slow learner. I need to hear things multiple times until I actually understand it. And so um, that was a painful lesson. But also at the same time, most people hadn't in the podcasting space yet invested in video. A lot of people were just doing audio for many years. And so I invested in a team to film it. We never monetized it, but I invested in the film it. And now it's paid dividends. What advice do you give to those you kind of mentor that are thinking about starting or launching a personal brand? Do you have a framework? Do you just say for sure go if you're going to do it, do video and do YouTube and you should go all in on YouTube. Or do you say, Hey, this is how you should decide if you're actually going to commit to video or not, because it's going to add some complexity. It might be a little bit more challenging. I just don't think people understand how much work it can be to build a personal brand and make it a full-time business. Um, And I think people need to get clear on who they are and what they really want, what their vision is for their their business or their personal brand. Cause you can get really, you can just lose your time so much being caught up in 
content, you know, scrolling, researching, creating, like it can just be a full-time time suck. If you're not clear on who you are, what you want and why you're doing this. My vision is to serve 100 million lives weekly to help them improve the quality of their life. So I'm very clear on my, my vision. And I understand that video is a massive component to reaching 100 million people, to the ability to try to reach 100 million people weekly is I'm going to need to do video until there's some other mechanism or platform that allows me to reach people or potentially reach that many people. Video is the way for that mission. Now, there's a lot of people that have personal brands that that's not their mission and that's not what they want. Um, they want to make, you know, five to 10 grand a month and work with five to 10 clients. So you don't need to be doing a lot of the things that I'm doing or you're doing in order to create that. But if you're building a personal brand, I think video just allows you to connect with people and build credibility more. However, I look at someone like James Clear, who just writes, you know, a couple articles a week and has a couple of social media posts a day and, and it's all written and image-based written content. And he's the best-selling author in the last five years in a row every single week with his book. So it's kind of like, all right, sure, he's doing some videos as interviews, but he rarely does much because he doesn't need to. So it depends on who you are, what you want, and why you're doing the thing you're doing. Um, but I feel like if you, you know, video is a way to reach more people if you really put in the time and energy to to master it or to get good at it over time, because it is a skill set. I love your vision to reach 100 million people weekly. Right now, though, your YouTube channel just got 5.4 million views over the last 30 days. So just the YouTube content is reaching 1.3 million people weekly. Then you have the audio, which we can't see, all your social reach all across the board. So you got these big numbers. Let's dive into some YouTube strategies. What strategies did you implement do you think were key to the growth you've experienced and where you are today? Strategies are always changing based on consumer behavior, based on audience retention, uh, based on the algorithms, based on what people's needs are at this season of life in, in, in the world. So the strategies are changing. However, the number one strategy is make a great piece of content. Like really think about how can I improve this piece of content from the previous one? How can I make it tighter? You know, how can I say less uh, and be more impactful? How can I have better editing? How can I have better research based on the content I'm making to make sure that I'm hitting the points that my audience needs to be resolved? Um, and then I'm solving a problem for me. You know, I'm more of a educational entertainment channel. I'm not a entertain. Let me entertain and just make it fun and interesting. It's more of education first. And sure, I want to edit it so that it is not slow and boring. So there's got to be some entertainment or some some movement to it. But that's really the first strategy is how do we make the, the best piece of content? Um, title and thumbnail is is another major strategy that I'm thinking about a lot. And we used to split test about 100 to 130 thumbnails a month on all my back catalog content. And that's been a big, we just see the improvement based on, okay, this video is only getting 5,000 views a day or whatever it is. Now it's getting 10,000 views a day because we changed the thumbnail 
based on the data. And we ran the split tests. And so that's just another strategy to help you maximize back content. The, the beautiful thing about YouTube for me is that's separate, that's different than audio is that, you know, my thousand plus videos, I don't even know how many videos I have, but my thousand plus videos are searchable all over the place. And so some stuff I shot three, four, five years ago still will make, I don't know, a thousand bucks a week today. Uh, or it could make $10,000 a month because it could get back pop up in the algorithm where it's a lot harder for an audio episode from a year ago to pop off. It's hard to get that traction unless I re-promote it in some way. So that's the beautiful thing that that YouTube allows me to monetize things I did eight years ago and continue to make, even if it's a few dollars a day, it's still something I did eight years ago that pays me dividends today. And I really like that. And all I have to do is, is change a thumbnail headline um, and a few different key things there. So another strategy is, is really just making decisions based on data. And it's something I try to teach my team constantly. I'm, I'm, I'm probably a little bit too obsessed with the data in my YouTube studio, just constantly like seeing why is something taking off. And there's a little bit of a art to the science, I think as well. But see, you know, it's like I had an episode last week with uh, Rhonda Byrne. Uh, she's the creator of The Secret. And I had had her on, I don't know, a year and a half ago, but it was virtual. And I'd seen that she hadn't done an in-person interview since I think it was like 12 years ago when she did it with Oprah. And so this was her first sit-down interview. And I just knew that it would do well if I could really nail the the hook, the intro, obviously make a great piece of content and have a great thumbnail and title. Uh, so it's kind of thinking about the data and seeing, okay, what are all the other videos telling me on consumer retention based on the titles that I have already? What are the keywords of my previous videos that took off? And how can I kind of put it all together for one video? How can I get all the things that have worked in the, the previous videos to make one great video that people really want to hear from? And so that's that's that did well in the last week and it's going to continue to do well. So it's just kind of thinking about all these things together and really optimizing it consistently. The top five videos on your channel, most viewed in the entire history of your channel are over two hours long. What have you learned about long form content or maybe quote unquote, ultra long content? You know, I think the algorithm evolves and changes and what YouTube wants evolves and changes. So for a couple of years, the longer people were staying on a video uh, and consuming it, YouTube was rewarding that. And so we were just testing it. Let's go from an hour to an hour and a half, an hour and a half to two hours. Let's do a three hours. Let's try a four hour one, see what happens. And I think that's something that we should be, everyone should be trying to do. And it's something I teach my team, like, let's test it. If we think it's going to work, let's test it. Maybe it flops, maybe it does great, but we won't know until we test it. And so I was leaning into that more and more. It was working until it stopped working, I don't know, earlier this year. And, and I was like, huh, why is this not working? Why is this, you know, not taking off as much? And one of the things was, well, maybe because now they're pushing ultra short form with shorts earlier in the year, maybe they're really pushing that and they want to incentivize people to create more of that. It's kind of been a reconfiguration over the last six months of like, okay, well, let's try to optimize shorts. I was holding off for a year on that. I created a whole different shorts channel because I didn't want to hurt the retention on my long form channel. But then we started to put a little bit on the main channel and said, let's try to bring the episodes down to an hour and a half to see if we can kind of get it back on an upward trend. 
And that seems to be working right now because I feel like people want the completion rate to be better. Like YouTube wants the, more of a completion rate as opposed to just staying on. And so it's just been constantly analyzing the data and seeing what's working, what's not working. How do we t- test it? How do we adapt? How do we try new things? Because what worked five years ago does not work today. What worked last year is going to evolve. And what works today may change next month. And I don't know if what you did two years ago is exactly the same thing you're doing today on your channel or what you're teaching. But I feel like if you want to be in this game of YouTube, you've got to be constantly on top of testing, trying things, seeing what's working, seeing what's working on other channels you know, taking some of that and trying it in your own, in your own flavor on your channel and then, and seeing if your audience responds to it. It can really be a, a full-time job. If you want to make this a business, it is a full-time job to understand all these things because you could go down the rabbit hole forever on data. And there's, there's some people that just kind of throw up videos and it just seems to work for them for two, three hours long. But I don't know if that will always work. I think there's seasons within YouTube as well. But uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you're obviously got more intel on this than me. No, I I agree with you. Always test, always adapt, always analyze data. And I'm curious, one of the biggest missed opportunities of especially video podcasters, but content creators across the board is if they've been in the game for a while, they've created a lot of content, they have a back catalog. One of the things you've done is you've repurposed your content into compilations. Can you break that down and break down what kind of team it takes to do that well if you're not doing it yourself? Because the overwhelm of past content to actually DJ it out in a fresh way, it's going to take some intelligence and take some strategy, or is it just kind of mashed together. What is your approach to how you've built out these compilations and explain those? You know, we've had, we've had some great kind of YouTube consultants that work with us uh, who have given us a strategy on compilations. We've been doing that for, I guess, three years now, I think. And I've put a pause on them in the last few months because they didn't, they weren't working as well anymore. And so there was, again, a couple of years where they worked really well and then they haven't worked as well. So again, it's been me like saying, okay, let's pause this. Let's reevaluate this. Just because it worked for a while doesn't mean it's always going to work. And um, maybe there's a way we can make it better. You know, the, the YouTube landscape has changed over the last six to 12 months. There's more and more creators jumping in. So that means there's more competition. So we've got to reevaluate certain things to see how can I, how can we continue to be unique, different, uh, service driven in that value. And what does our audience want? You know, again, YouTube shorts wasn't a thing really a year ago. I mean, I guess it was, but it's now like more a thing. And is consumer behavior changed? The, you know, is audience behaviors change? If so, how do we adapt to that? So, you know, it's, it's testing the data. It's, it's seeing like, okay, this video popped off with these three neuroscientists. What if we made a video of all three of them together and did the top, you know, 20 minutes where we saw the spike on each one that people wanted to go back to those those moments and just create the best of videos. And so that's just kind of like the simple strategy. And then it's how do you edit it? How do you piece it together? How do you, you know, DJ it, as you said, so it's seamless, so it looks good. So it's a fresh new idea, uh, not just repurposing an old piece of content. Uh, but making it look like a completely new, it, it is a new piece of content, but making it its own thing. So, 
you know, I'm reevaluating. Do I want to put those on my main channel moving forward? Do I create a whole new channel that's just compilation of best of stuff? Um, that's kind of my thought process moving forward is like making a whole new channel of that and just having someone dedicated to it. If you know someone, let me know. I'm looking to, to hire someone to do that. But that has been definitely valuable. And I've seen and I've helped others kind of do that. And I've seen their views double, their revenue double when they can implement it correctly. So I think you got to be strategic about it, test it, see if it makes sense for you. But I know there's a lot of creators doing compilations or best of and it's crushing for them. Your main channel had 39 uploads in the last month, but then you also have greatness clips, a Spanish channel, a shorts channel, a Spanish clips channel, and a Portuguese channel. Yep. How big is the team running media and essentially the YouTube arm? And I then dip dip into audio as well to to sustain what you're putting out. Well, I mean, the total team is like 20, but they're not all working on media uh, and content. But I would say we do have a bunch of freelancers that are kind of like part-time on specific channels or things like that. But I don't know, all in on audio and video, probably like seven people, you know, full-time or part-time, something like that. And like your Clips channel, 48 uploads on your Clips channel. Is that all automated for you it's kind of a it's a system probably not as automated as i like you know i probably need to hire someone like you to help me come in and and overhaul the whole process of it all you know a lot of this has just been like me saying here's what we need to do how do we build the system and how do we execute it how do we find the right people but it's a lot you know it's a lot of channels there's so much we could be doing more with every channel you know our, our spanish channel alone is about to hit a million subscribers and um there's so much more and we just throw the videos up. You know, it's like we kind of mimic the headline of what we've done in the title, but we don't really optimize it. Like we don't go back and split test anything because it's, you know, you got to hire another person, you got to manage it all. So I think we could double the growth of that, the revenue and, and some, and the views of just our Spanish channel alone. If we just had someone split testing the back catalog and really being thoughtful about it. But again, I'm focused on the main channel. I'm trying to do the main content. I'm doing, you know, five, six interviews a week. There's only so much I can do as a human. And so it's how do we teach, train, execute, create systems and processes within the team as well. Um, but uh, yeah, again, I'm going to have to do a call with you afterwards to figure all this out. Yeah, I love that. And and for you, you feel that starting a separate Clips channel, um, one of a huge debate. So totally your point of view is do shorts go on a separate channel? Do Clips go on a separate channel? Um, or should they all be kept on the main channel and the size of your brand certainly matters because some, and there's many different factors. What is your point of view on that? And what if somebody was approaching you maybe earlier in their, their career of like, do I just, should I just stack it all on the same? Should I also maybe? Yeah. I mean, there's two, my, I go back and forth on this and I don't know if I have the best answer, but I, I see other friends who have channels that are growing that are more new in the last two, three, four years, let's say, um, that seem to be growing very fast, who have long form content and clips content, you know, let's call it an hour to two hours and then 15 to 20 minutes. And I see that and it works for them. Now, I don't know if it works for them because they're a new channel and it's just, they're just growing because they're newer and, and the algorithm is in their favor right now. 
or if that will constantly work once they've kind of hit a peak in subscribers and views and they kind of taper off. But I do know that when we go on TikTok, we're not looking for hour-long content. We're looking for shorter content. And YouTube still, in my mind, is, is more like, okay, it's you're, you're typically consuming longer content. Short form is more recent in the last couple of years there. Or longer content would be like a 10-minute vlogger, even if you're younger and you're watching 10-minute videos. You go to a channel on TV or you go to a channel on YouTube to watch something and you typically know the length of the content you're going to have on that channel. So when you go to my channel and you say, oh, here's a three-hour video and now here's a three or 10-minute video, you're kind of confusing people. What are, what are they getting? Are they getting longer form content, shorter form content? If you do it from the beginning and that's what you tell them, then that's different. You say, hey, on Mondays, we're going to have a long form. On Thursdays, we're going to do a recap. You know, We're going to have a short every single day. This could all change in a year. Shorts is new. The algorithm changes. In a year, they could say, all right, all we want is, I don't know, 30-second clips now. I don't know. It's like it could change at any moment. And then consumer behaviors can change based on what's happening. So I don't have the best answer. I know for me, it's like I've got more of a legacy account because I've been on there for a long time and I've been teaching and training people longer form content. So if I switch it up and it hurts the channel, then I just need to be aware of that. That's why we test things to see how is it impacting us. Um, and if I'm doing 10 to 20 minute short videos, then people aren't staying on as long. You know, that's why these two, three hour videos, people stay on longer and therefore they would share my content in the suggested column to other channels more because uh, I was getting rewarded for people staying on the platform. So you just got to be thinking about all those things and testing it. How does the upload schedule and the way the episodes are edited differ between YouTube and audio. They're pretty similar. We used to do more video. We used to do like four or five videos a week. And we paused that six months ago because we just saw it wasn't working as much. And so we used to do like two, three compilation videos a week and, and two, you know, new videos a week. And that was working for a while until it wasn't working. And so we, we paused the compilation videos. And I was thinking about pausing it anyways and putting on its own channel, but I just haven't had the time to do it yet. So we've kind of like, okay, how do we, how do we get our views back on track to an upward trend? And how do we start teaching and training our audience what they're going to be getting more consistently? And how do we navigate the landscape better on where it is now? So that's why you got to pay attention to the data month after month and see what's working, what's not working. Why is it going up? Why is it going down? How can you adjust it? things like that. But the audio we do Monday, Wednesday, Fridays, sometimes on a Saturday for a bonus episode. And then with YouTube, we're just doing two videos a week right now, I believe long form, but we're doing a short every single day. So you see a lot of uploads, but it's really shorts. And it's trying to test that and see, okay, can we gain subscribers from shorts? Can we drive people. Now they've added a link to the longer videos and the shorts. So that's what I was really excited about. Can we get in front of people with a short clip and drive them back to the long form video? That's kind of what I was waiting for the whole time. And I think that just started in the last three or four months. I'm not sure. So that's nice now, but how does it work? Do, does that convert? Do people, when they're thinking short form content, are they going to go and watch an hour long video? I don't know. 
So this is all new stuff we got to test and see what works. Yeah, we've been testing the related video feature where you can link the long form video on a short and using advanced YouTube analytics, you can see the traffic sources and the amount of watch time you get from the traffic sources. And your theory seems to be correct that while people do indeed click the link, the watch time is not great. Like we we've seen maybe up to three minutes, two minutes, but compared to an hour long episode, because when you're in the shorts mindset, right, you're, you're getting so many dopamine hits. Yeah. You're just getting so much. So even if you click and it's you're a just good in a, look, you're just in a loop. Yeah. Yeah. And then does that hurt your channel? Mm-hmm. If people come to a long video and only watch two minutes? Yeah, I know that is like, oh, well, they actually weren't interested. They don't care. So we're not going to show people that video anymore. Yeah. So, I've so you got to ask yourself that. I've been thinking about how to use the related video feature to more of a step deeper, like a, a good eight minute video or or less than eight minutes, because rather than short, like a really well optimized YouTube video that maybe in a way kind of viewer journey converts, oh man, it holds my attention enough and kind of shifts me. I mean, that's at least the logic, but we're always testing. Do you have a source of inspiration for your work that might surprise listeners on a big level? The brand you've wanted to build, the show you've wanted to build, the excellence of your branding, maybe a book, movie, historical figure, historical figure, a legend in the industry. Is there any unknown surprising source of inspiration that you pulled from or a couple of sources? The Olympics. Break that down. Just, you know, if you watch the Olympics on TV, if you watch the Olympics for two weeks on TV, like every day, you will cry. You will cry on the, on the storytelling, the emotions, the, the way they tell stories, the sound design behind the stories, the anticipation, the buildup. You'll, you'll feel pain. You'll feel pleasure. Like they take you on a roller coaster and you are bought in on rooting for underdogs, rooting for heroes. You're, you're just, you feel chills and you feel like, wow, you feel like this sense of awe and inspiration. And so I love watching the Olympics and any types of events like that, like tournaments where there's something big on the line, uh, you know, Ohio State football, Michigan game, like going, I went to the game last year and it, Unfortunately, the Ohio State lost, which was kind of sad. But the whole pageantry, it's a it's an all-day experience before the actual game is played. Walking into the arena, hearing the marching band, seeing the army in salute, like the whole pageantry of being at the game is an experience. And just seeing the creativity of what people are doing to sell hot dogs, to the merchandise, to all these different things, it's just like it's a production. But for me, it's a it's a fun, inspiring production, sports. And so I always like to be inspired by watching sports on TV, you know, big sporting events, things like that, where there's something on the line, there's stakes on the line, where there's two different individuals or two teams or two rivals that it's like there's so much on the line the backstories for me that gets me inspired because people want to feel something people want to feel emotion they want to feel awe they want to feel magic and there's nothing better than a sporting event than thinking wow what a magical moment and you never know what you're going to get you never know 
Like you think you know who might win, you think might happen, but anything can happen at any moment. You never know what you're going to see. And I think, you know, the goal for me is to create that. How do I create that with long form educational content, inspiring content? How do we empower people to live their best life and um, do it through media? So I think about the whole user experience. If they found me on one Instagram post and they come back to my site, how do I create that experience of awe? Well, the design has to be a certain way. You know, the content has to be a certain way. The headlines, the, if you go to greatness.com, which is a site we launched about a year ago, you know, I wanted to transition from my personal brand, lewishouse.com, which where everything was at for a long time, which served me for a while. But then I just said, I don't want it to be about me. Like I never really wanted this to be about me, but I understand I needed to, there needs to be a face to the message to help launch something. You know, when I started this 10 years ago. And one of the reasons why I called it, I didn't call it the Lewis House show is because I didn't want it to be about me as the focal point. Nothing wrong with that, but that's just not what I wanted for me. And I thought that was too much pressure to call it my name. So I called it the School of Greatness with Lewis House. So I'm the host and I'm the facilitator, I'm the curator, but I'm really not the expert. Now, I've gained a lot of wisdom and expertise over the last decade of being with experts and doing the things myself, but I'm still a beginner in a lot of ways. I'm still someone who's learning every single day. And so I've, I've tried to position it more as a me as of course the, the host and the face, but it's not really about me. And, um, and therefore the branding, the photography, the design, like I'm always trying to level it up. I've always tried to be a leader in that experience. So if you go to greatness.com, you'll see every image is a, is a custom design one of one for any article. It's not like some just template or some random photo. It's like we design it in house and make something beautiful. And I'm always saying, we got to make it better. We got to make it better. How do we continue to up level? Um, and so there's a lot of things that I want to continue to do better. Just time and team. Did you, when did you buy greatness.com? Man, I, I bought that price six years ago. Six or seven years ago. And I, I said, maybe, yeah, maybe six years ago, 2017, 2018. And I sat on it for like four, four or five years. I didn't do anything with it because I was just like, ah, I don't know what to do with this yet. But I knew I wanted to own the word. And, um, cause I have at greatness on, on Instagram and, you know, school of greatness. And I was just like, man, I want to own this word. So. Yeah, I'm grateful I have it. Have you shared publicly how much it costs? Have you ever wondered how your life could change if you had the right tools and connections at your fingertips? Imagine getting insider access to the latest trends and dynamic relationships propelling your business and YouTube channel to the next level. All of that and more is happening at our annual conference, Grow With Video Live, April 2024 in Las Vegas. Grow With Video Live is the only conference that's focused on helping experts, entrepreneurs, coaches, speakers, and business-minded content creators learn the best video marketing strategies and how to scale high-impact businesses with YouTube. You'll hear from industry experts like Dave Ramsey, Shalene Johnson, Pat Flynn, and others who are doing this at a top level. To purchase your ticket to attend, just go to growwithvideolive.com. And I should note, this conference will not be streaming online. As our world becomes more digital, we are focused on creating an environment for human connection and transformation. So this event is truly gonna be special. Seats are limited and we always sell out. So make sure to secure your ticket at growwithvideolive.com. What, what's the range? <laughs> 
it's a good amount. Yeah, it's a good amount. Good amount. Six figures. <laughs> it's a good amount. Six figures. Yeah. 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 Of course. Yeah. Awesome. Um, and powerful brand. But, uh, I remember. I remember having a before I launched it. I remember asking like a domain broker. I was like, "What do you think this is worth?" I mean, I didn't even have. It wasn't even a site yet. It was just a, a domain. Mm-hmm. He was like, I, "I'd buy it for two million from you right now, mm-hmm. just because you'd find some." Nike or Under Armour or someone that would buy it just for a campaign because they all use the word greatness in their marketing and their campaigns. And you see car commercials, you see sports drink commercials, you see all these commercials using it in their slogans, greatness. And so, um, you know, he was like, but this is something you never sell. You just keep it in your family unless there's just some absurd number that just makes no sense. Yeah. It's a gnarly domain. That's, and and power, it's a, a power move for, for sure. Patrick David just bought VT.com, two letters. Yeah. I saw that. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Different, you know, domains um, can be expensive, but can be actually underpriced compared to when you really think about what could be built on the back end. What is a common mindset in your industry that you disagree with and why? I don't know if it's in my industry, but I, because I don't really hang out with people who have this mindset, but I see some people have a mindset of competition and kind of lack of collaboration um, or false collaboration. And I, I don't know. I see why they're doing it because it's coming from a place of scarcity and it's coming from a place of like, maybe they've been burned in the past or something like that. So I have compassion for it, but it just kind of frustrates me when people are, Cause I'm such a, I guess a giving person and I'm pretty open about a lot of stuff. Um, and I want to see people win and succeed because I feel like when, you know, we all can win and we can all succeed. And I'm just more of a fan of collaboration than competition. Now competition, if I'm playing a sport or something like that, that's a different thing. But in terms of seeing people win in life, it's like, how do we, how do we all support each other? Now it doesn't mean you have to give all of your time and energy and, uh, your secrets away every single moment of every day, but it's like, how can you be a generous giver and, um, and support someone? So you said, um, you know, there, you have an abundance mindset. There's opportunity for everybody in a 2024 world though. What advice would you have people that are starting from the beginning or early in their career, especially when they look at the landscape, YouTube started in 2005 and so that's uh, 18 years, 19 years uh, mature now. Uh, podcasting continues to grow. It's evolving. Spotify, different platforms, YouTube music and YouTube podcasts now classifying. So there's a lot of kind of, in a way, maturity coming to the entire industry and it can feel crowded. And you're, you've built a powerful personal brand, a, pers- a powerful brand overall, a bigger brand than just your personal brand. But for someone who's just starting and looking at that uphill battle and thinking like, man, Lewis has already gotten zillions of views. He's 10 years in, you know, Sean's been doing this. I've been doing YouTube. I started a channel for my church in 2007. So I've literally been doing YouTube for 16, 17 years. And, and you've wa- and you've been in this industry so long, but yet. I think, I think my first video was 2007. Um, it was like a someone sent me a screenshot yesterday. These guys that I did the first video with sent me a screenshot. I mean, I think it was like a month ago or something. Cause it was like 2007, like 
August 2007 or something like that. And I was like, man, that's crazy. It was a dance video and uh, that we did. And it's just like it's evolved so much, the platform. So it's been a lot of time. Yeah. Well, yeah. What We have 16 years ago, Electric Violin. It's on your channel still. It's cool you still got those up. Electric Violin. There's another one that I think I archived from, yeah, before then. That was like me dancing. I was like, yeah, maybe I should put this down. Yeah. But there's some gems. It's on unlisted. There. Yeah, it's unlisted. So, okay. So someone's starting. They're starting in, uh, you know, in. I think it's, I think it's easier like, I don't know why, but I feel like if I started a new channel today, I think it would be easier to get to 100,000 subscribers in a year in 2024 than it would be five years ago. Because, yes, it's more crowded and there's more competition, but there's more tools, there's more software, there's more collaboration and there's more people consuming and watching content on YouTube than five, 10 years ago. So I think it's easier now than ever to get views. If you really follow expertise from someone like yourself and you really find a good niche and um, you learn how to just get in the algorithm, you learn how to latch on to other types of content. I mean, there's people that are just making reaction videos. They're getting millions of views because they're latching onto a viral trend or whatever. There's people that are launching stuff and just talking about their perspective on news of the week. And because people are searching that, they're able to get views. So there's ways that you got to get views. I'm not saying it's it's going to happen no matter what. I'm just saying I feel like it's easier now than it was five years ago to get subscribers and views. If you really are intentional about what is the audience need, how can I provide it to them in a unique way? And how can I create a great piece of content that serves them? So that takes time, talent, energy, learning, failing, all those different things. But remember, I saw a guy, I think his name's James Johnny, James Janney, something like that. He, he launched a channel, I think, two years ago during the pandemic, and he launched one video. And the first video got like half a million views or a million views. And then he launched another video a month later. He launched like one video a month and he's got like one and a half million views, uh, one and a half million subscribers now, just from like a video a month. Now the videos were awesome. And I was like, they were, they were like mini documentary styles that he made from his bedroom, but they were, he was thoughtful. He was intentional. He made a great piece of content and people wanted to watch it. So I think it's easier now than ever to, to get views and subscribers if you care. And if you really put a time and attention and being thoughtful into how you're going to create the content. Now, if you're going to launch a, a YouTube podcast and it's just, and you are a nobody and you don't have any credibility and you're just interviewing your friends, that may not do well. So you've got to know what people want. Uh, you got to know the types of content. There is work involved. You know, I've got to be thinking about who are the guests I'm going to have on. Are, and sometimes guests that I have on that do really well on my audio platform don't do well on YouTube. YouTube is its own culture. Sometimes I'll have massive celebrities uh, that no one cares about on YouTube, but they do really well on audio. And so it's kind of a dance. Each platform is different. Um, you can't just say, okay, I'm going to make a piece of content. And it's going to be perfect and everyone's going to love it on every platform. you got to be thinking platform specific with the content. And for the person that's building up their brand, you've got to mentor a lot of different people that want to follow in your footsteps. What are the most common mistakes you see people with that intent do 
that ultimately maybe slows down their progress, hurts their progress, or maybe even takes them out of the game. You've been in this over a decade and some people have come and gone. What do you think the mistakes and the pitfalls are when it comes to building this up? I think people focused on the money too early, like trying to sell something too early could be a pitfall because you can smell it really quickly if someone's just trying to sell, sell, sell. And I think a lot of those people have come and gone. And so I think of someone like an Alex Hermosi, who is a great example of not doing this. He just said, I'm going to come in here for the last one and a half, two years. I'm going to give all my best stuff away for free. And I'm going to think about how can I deliver it each video and spend the maximum on the video time and money to make it better. He didn't say how can, you know, I think maybe in the first six months, he was like, okay, I'm just going to shoot videos and put it out there. But then he said, okay, how can I actually invest the maximum amount of time and money on this video, even if it loses me money to make it great, to build brand, to build audience and to build trust. And I think he's done it extremely well by, I can't remember what he said. I think he says it publicly, but it's like, he's spending like 40 grand a month or something just on like video editing or something like that. 150 now. It's probably more. Probably more now. Yeah, yeah, this was like a year ago or something. It's paying off dividends. Now he's got money, so he can do that. So not everyone can do that from the, the jump. But he also wasn't selling anything for really a year or two, except for a book. And so, and look at the results. So I just think about the results of that. Now, again, that's time, energy. It's a full-time gig, essentially, doing that, creating content. But he's gotten incredible results. And he sold, his last book sold probably like a million copies already. And he's able to really influence and impact people in a positive way with that. So I think selling too soon or being salesy is not going to help you. If you go to my Instagram, you don't see anything. My YouTube doesn't have anything where I sell anything. You know, it's a couple of times a year. Hey, I've got my event or I've got a book and that's really it. And it's, it's more if people want to learn more, how do you put them through a, okay, opt in for your email for a one-on-one call. If you're interested in this thing, um, as opposed to just buy, buy, buy. So I think if you're selling, you're not going to build an audience as fast and, and you're going to burn people out. That'd be one mistake. I think just being really inauthentic is going to hurt you. I think people can smell it when you're not real um, or when you're trying to be too perfect or every word is trying to be like perfectly edited. I think that hurts you. Just people want more realness. And especially in a shorts culture, you know, when everything is shot on the iPhone that does better and goes more viral when it's more authentic, I think they can smell it when, sure, make it look well produced, but you've got to be real. And I think that, that, um, that'll hurt you. So those would be the two things I would say, just trying to make everything too perfect and trying to sell too much. Coming up, uh, I want to learn about the greatness mindset and, um, also about some quick tips from you. And I do want to shout out, of course, check out the show notes for all of Lewis's stuff. We'll come back to that later. Uh, but his newest book is already a New York Times bestseller, The Greatness Mindset. I can't wait to talk about that. But before we get there, you have learned to really be a great interviewer. What tips, what are maybe some early mistakes if you look back at your early interviews and how have you improved and what advice would you have for somebody that has any kind of interview show from your now over a decade of experience? I think the biggest mistake would be not being prepared, like not getting like just simple details about the person's life or about 
you know, making sure you get the correct information on the latest and greatest on all their, their past information. So you're not saying something that's wrong or that's inaccurate, making you look like you didn't do your research. Uh, so just trying to do the best you can to, Hey, get the correct bio from the team or look on their Wikipedia or whatever it might be. Just do some basic research. Do they have, are they married? Do they have kids? Like what is their birthday? Just getting things, you know, just a little bit goes a long way in terms of being like, wow, I didn't, I didn't know you realized we we have a similar birthday or we have this or that, you know, whatever it might be that goes a long way. Um, so, so not preparing to understand those details is a mistake. I would say just not listening is a mistake. A lot of people have a list of questions and they don't listen and follow up with like, oh, tell me more about that. That's interesting. They just go on to the next question. Um, and, and it feels like an interview, not a conversation. So you want to make it feel more like a conversation in my mind, rather than here are my 10 questions. I'm just going to knock them off and not really listen or pay attention. People want to be heard and seen, and uh, they want to feel like you care. Even if you don't, they want to feel like you care. And that means you've got to pay attention. So it's a skill set. How do I pay attention and listen, but also make sure I want to ask these other questions? And so you've got to dance within your own mind at sometimes uh, or prepare. And so I'm really reviewing the questions beforehand and again, going back to the beginning of the conversation, I'm strategizing in my mind about what does my audience want on audio as audio listeners, the experience for the first three to five minutes. What does it need to be? What do I need them to feel like they're getting to right away? What pain am I solving right away? What am I doing on YouTube? It's a different community. You know, over the last three, four years ago, I used to do a longer intro. Then I realized watch time dropped off. So I now I go right into the first question. So I've got to be paying attention to data and analyzing user experience. So I do a quick intro, maybe a 15-second one just to set context. I put context on the screen so people know who this person is. I add credibility because that will help them stay longer. Then I get right into... What is the question that I know is going to be related to the thumbnail and the title? So we usually pick and choose the thumbnail and title or what we think it's going to be beforehand. And then the question is related to that. So I answer the question of the title and thumbnail right away. And so I'm thinking and preparing and strategizing around kind of all these things. And so I review the questions. I'm reviewing kind of the notes. I'm doing my research. And then I've got to kind of set myself free and be willing to shift at any time. I like to have, you know, a conversation before the interview with someone, whether I know them or I don't know them, to see what's really on their heart and mind. Because when someone feels like you care and you're listening to what matters to them most now, they're more likely to talk about it and be open about it. And that's where a lot of magic comes from. So I might completely shift where the conversation goes based on their energy and what's happening in our life in that moment. So all that together, if you can practice some of those things, that will support you. But just showing up with a list of questions and not listening and paying attention, I think is a mistake. Have you ever felt really nervous going into one of your interviews? Yeah, I still get nervous sometimes. Like yesterday I had Rick Rubin on and I was nervous and I was like, man, why am I nervous? 
I also hadn't done an interview in like a month because I was traveling to Japan. So I was kind of like, uh, just, you know, a little rusty, I guess, but I get, you know, I love being around great people that have done great things in the world and people who have collaborated with great individuals. So here's a man who, you know, worked with the Beastie Boys and who essentially discovered LL Cool J and then albums with Red Hot Chili Peppers, Lady Gaga, Eminem, Jay-Z, you know, everyone. He's like Kanye West. He's like produced all these nine-time Emmy award-winning, um, Grammy award-winning producer, all these different things. So I'm like, wow, this guy for four decades has been at the highest level of his career. It's inspiring to me. So, I mean, I wasn't really nervous. I was more just like, I don't know him personally. And so how's he going to show up? Is he going to have good energy? Is it because when I don't know someone, a lot of times I know people or we've connected beforehand. This is the first time speaking to him. So I'm just like, I don't know. He's is he going to be cool with me? Is he going to be guarded? It's just like getting to know someone for five minutes before you turn on the camera, how to get people to fully connect with you and open up. That is the goal that someone feels vulnerable enough to open up, to share and reveal things that maybe they've never shared before. Cause that makes it a beautiful, that's like a sporting event. You see something you've never seen before in a moment that you cannot capture anywhere else. It's this incredible flow rush. It's like, wow, this just happened and I'm witnessing it two feet away from me. It's a beautiful thing when you're at a sporting event, when you're at a concert and you see a musician, it's like a spiritual experience when you witness something that is magical. And that can happen in a conversation where someone's like vulnerable. They open up, they share something they've never shared. They tell a story in a beautiful way where you're just like, wow, that was so cool. And I know it's going to help my audience. It's just whatever it might be. And sometimes you may have three minutes to do that before you start the conversation. I remember being nervous before Kobe Bryant and I had three minutes before I had to turn the cameras on when I met him to say, how am I going to make this the best conversation I've ever had in my life with knowing a guy for three minutes? And it's just, you got to be prepared. You got to be ready and you got to be confident in yourself. So what'd you do in those three minutes? How did you make that the best conversation of your life? Well, I got there, you know, an hour and a half early to set up so that I wasn't feeling rushed. You know, his whole team beforehand was like, gave me a couple pieces of paper of all the questions that I can't ask. That I'm not allowed to ask. And um, I remember sitting there for an hour and a half before the interview. He was in the office. He was the first one in the office. The lights were off. He was there by himself meditating in his office with the lights off. And then his assistant opened the door to let me in. This is like 6.30 a.m. or something uh, in his office in Orange County. His assistant lets me in, turns the lights on. We walk through the office space because I'm looking to see where to set up the cameras and um, we walk by his office. There's like big kind of glass windows in his office. We walk by it in a hallway. And I just see a shadow in the corner of the back of the office. And it's Kobe. And I go, as we walk back past it, I go, is that Kobe? And she's like, yeah. And I go, what's he doing here? She's like, he's always the first one here. I was like, what? This was after he retired. This was after he won an Oscar. Like, and, and he was crushing it. He was just launched a podcast called The Punies. So he was promoting this podcast. And she said, yeah, he's he's almost always the first one in here. And I go, this guy has nothing to prove. He's already got five NBA championships. He's got an Oscar. He's, you know, 
the greatest of all time, arguably at the time, all this stuff. And she goes, yeah. And he was in the gym at four 30 with his daughter this morning. I go, this is unbelievable. And, um, and so I was thinking, well, maybe he'll come out at some point and I can talk to him, but he didn't. So I just sat there 20 feet away. He couldn't see me. It was kind of like a wall, but I just sat there like anticipating, is he to come out? Is he not going to come out? I don't know. I got to be ready. And as we get closer to the, the time, now more and more people are kind of coming in the office. There's another production company. Little Wayne is there with a security and a production company and the other side of the office setting up because he's interviewing him for something else right afterwards. His team is coming in. You know, there's commotion now. The lights are on. His publicists are there. They're telling me, hey, he's only got 20 minutes because he has to go to this. And then the next interview, it's, it's a whole thing. The whole day is packed. Every minute is booked for him. And um, I'm just like here with my, you know, Tiffany, my videographer and our couple little cameras on a tripod. And there's like this massive, you know, production happening in the other side of the office, HBO sports or something like that. And I'm like, uh, we're just like this little podcast, you know? And I go, Tiffany, you know, I'm mic'd up. I'm like, let's test everything. Make sure everything's good. I'm mic'd up. I was like, just start rolling it right now, 10 minutes before. And when he gets out here, put the mic on him. As I'm shaking his hand, just put the mic on him so we can capture everything. And uh, he gets out there three minutes before. So he walks out. He comes right up to me. He shakes my hand. And um, and I knew beforehand, I said, the these few moments is going to determine the quality of the entire interview. What happens in these three minutes before this conversation? And so I just said to myself, I need to connect with him on a human level. That's all that matters right now. You know, he's got so much going on today. I just need to connect with him one-on-one. And luckily as an athlete, I can do that with other athletes pretty easily. But I was like, what's going to make Kobe feel comfortable with some kid from Ohio that he has no clue who I am? I said to him right away when I first met him, I just said, hey, Kobe, thanks for doing this. I just wanted to say uh, I acknowledge you because I've got some Olympic friends who said that their greatest Olympics, greatest part of their Olympic experience was meeting you, taking a photo with you and having you come and support them at a lot of the games. They just said that was like some of the most fun moments that they got to experience during their whole Olympics. And he goes, man, the Olympics are amazing. It's like, this was my favorite time. Like, I love it. I love representing the country, all these things. So he opened his heart and started talking about something he was passionate about. And I said, you know, I'm on, I'm, I actually play with the national team for a sport called team handball with the USA team. And then I started speaking about it. He cuts me off and he goes, wait a minute, you play handball? And I go, yeah, people don't really know what it is here in the USA. He goes, I know exactly handball. I played handball in Italy growing up. I love handball. It's like, I wish America was bigger in it. Like, I can't believe you play handball. That's the coolest thing ever. And I go, I know I love it. It's so cool. And then I just said, um, he goes, man, that's so awesome. I loved playing it, you know, growing up in Italy. And then I just said, and now we're like sitting down and like, you know, sitting here, getting ready, all this stuff. And then I said, you know, we've got some mutual friends in common who've just said some amazing things about you as well. And his publicist was like, oh, who do you know in common? And I said, you know, I just had Novak Djokovic on recently and he was just saying, singing your praises. And he goes, Novak, that is my brother. He is like the best human being and what a competitor, like, man, his spirit, everything. So those three things within like literally two and a half minutes, you know, is happening as we're like shaking hands and miking him up and sitting down and like getting situated. Then I have these pieces of paper from the publicist in my hand 
Then I have my iPad and my notes or my iPhone. I can't remember what I had there, but I had, you know, my notes and then these pages from the publicist. And I said, I know we've only got, we've, we've got, we're close, short on time. You got a busy day. I know we got 20 minutes. Um, and I've got this list of questions that your team told me we can't talk about, but is there anything else that's off limits for you? Um, besides this before we get started. And he just grabs my knee and he looks at me and he says, ask me anything you want and take as long as you need. And I, and I'm getting chills just thinking about it because it was just like, Oh, wow. But the three minutes made the difference It you know, I think it eventually went like 40, 45 minutes. Their team was like, you know, telling me to cut it off the whole time, but he just kept rolling with it. So I was getting the most I could. And he opened up about things he never opened up before. And it spread viral all over the place because he was talking about family and relationships and love and things that he wasn't talking about in other interviews. So again, being prepared, thinking about him and what's on his heart and mind, speaking into that, not just going off like just a list of questions, really connecting with him human to human. It didn't, it didn't guarantee it would be a great episode, but it set it up for a better episode. That is uh, such enriching advice that can help us all improve and, and get better. And I know for anybody that has an interview show, they've got a list of dream guests. Some guests, of course, feel out of reach, you know, not to categorize, but you think of this idea of A-list, B-list, C-list, just different guests that are reachable. You've definitely had A-list, like A1 celebrities on your podcast. What advice do you have for reaching out to hard to reach guests? building your way up for maybe someone's intimidated. It, it, you got to get your numbers up size. I'm sure it has to be practical because people have to have a, a decision making framework for the use of their time and what shows they go on. But you've been doing this so long. What are some maybe unknown ways that people could do a better job of reaching out to people they respect and, and love and would love to have on maybe if they're, you know, mid-sized or as they grow. A few things that come to mind is one is like, Make sure your personal brand is something that you're proud of, that you you could think like if this person saw my social media accounts, they would think, you know, it's worth meeting or giving time to. Like, is it high quality? Does it look well? Does it, you know, design well? You know, I see everything. I see everything and everyone. I'm constantly researching. I'm constantly aware of what's happening, what's taking off, who's getting started, I'm kind of obsessed with it, like, because I want to know who's going to pop off. I want to know who's big that I know is going to be inspiring for people to hear from, but who's also unknown. But I, but I see they're going to be massive in the next one to two years. I remember meeting Jay Shetty when he had a hundred thousand fans. He had no Instagram. He had a hundred thousand fans on Facebook. And I met him six years ago. When I met him, I was just like, this guy's going to be massive. And, um, I was like, let's be friends, man. You, you, like anything you need, just let me know. I, like I'm here to support you. And um, he just blew up, you know, over the next few years. There's a number of people that I've met that have had very small followings. And I'm just like, they got it. There's something they have around their content, around their energy, around their way of being that all they have to do is be consistent. That's it. If they're being consistent, their energy, their authenticity is going to impact millions and so I'm always looking for expertise, credibility, and you can smell it in a second just by looking at someone's content, if they have it or not, or if they need more work. And so I'm thinking about that in terms of 
making sure your personal brand or the content, even if you only have a few pieces of content, make sure it's great. Jay had four videos when I met him. That's all he had on his, on his Facebook page, four videos, but they were all exceptional. And I was like, Oh wow. He gets it. He gets it. Storytelling content. All he has to do is just create more and be consistent and it's going to, it's going to take off. And some people either get it or they don't. And so make sure your personal brand looks good and looks credible. And there's a lot of people. All I have to do is click on one post and I can tell if you're doing something shady or not. All I have to do is one post and I can see, oh, so make sure you don't do shady stuff around, you know, likes and comments and I can just smell it. There is, there's certain, I don't know, types of people and accounts that I'm just like, no, it's just not credible. I just can't have them on. And so, and I get pitched all the time. So I'm always checking out people's profiles to see what's going on. And uh, just make sure it's all in integrity and then alignment. The greatness mindset. Your new book, New York Times bestseller already. One of the quotes in it is so many great people live lives absent of greatness because they live by default and not by design. Um, We want definitely, uh, this is a great book to pick up and we could all with improved mindset, improve what we're doing in our life and our YouTube channel. Um, but break down a nugget or two, maybe from the entrepreneur content creator, um, side of things about how important mindset is and not just learning the tactics. Yeah. I'll break down everything on, on one page, uh, in the book page 201. If someone ever gets it, there's a, there's kind of a graph here. I don't know if you can see it here, but this whole graph kind of explains the direction of your life and, and living a life by design, not by default. I think. I was having a conversation with a creator, I don't know, a month ago, who has been blowing up. She's probably, I don't know, in the last, she was in school a few years ago. She started making content in college and, and then she's kind of blown up and she's making great money, probably seven figures this year, you know, as a content creator, doing sponsorship deals, you know, things like that. And she asked me to jump on a call with her to do, do some, you know, kind of give her a strategy session. And she just didn't know exactly where she wanted to go, right? She just, she's just kind of stuff's working. She's making money. She keeps making more content, but it's kind of getting overwhelming. And there's, it, it didn't happen by accident, but it started happening really quickly for her. And so she just kept saying yes to the next opportunity, right? And now I'm like, you got to design and get clear on your vision. I go in one sentence, what are you about? What is your mission? She's like, well, I just want to like help young girls and I kind of want to do this and I want to do And I'm like, well, I'm not clear on what you want still. So in one sentence, get clear on that. Take a week or two and think about what you really want over the next few years. It doesn't have to be for the rest of your life, but over the next couple of years, what do you want? One sentence. I told you in the beginning, my mission is to impact and serve 100 million lives every single week to help them improve the quality of their life. That's my mission for now. It may evolve and change. And then you can go down and say, well, how am I going to do that? Well, I'm going to do that through using media because media right now is the way to do that. Video, audio, written content. That's the way for me to, that's the mechanism to reaching that amount of people. Now, then you ask, why do I want to do that? Well, for me personally, at this season of my life, I feel like I want to maximize the most of my talents and gifts and and time to impact people, to be of service. You know, I feel I'm here for a reason. Feel God, the universe put me here for a reason at this time in the world. 
I feel like I have all my pain from the past and, and challenges for a reason. And I've learned things for a reason. And I want to maximize it because it's going to make me feel good. And I feel like that's what I'm supposed to do right now. Maybe in five years, I won't. But that's why I'm doing it right now, because I feel like I have a responsibility. I have an opportunity. And it brings me a lot of fulfillment and joy serving. And so that, for me, answers my mission, how, and why. But we don't know those things. We're just going to be kind of more aimless. And it's going to be by default, not by design. And it doesn't mean we can't have a good life. I just feel like you're always going to be asking questions. Where am I heading? Why am I doing this? How am I going to do it? So on this page, you know, for the last 10 years, I did um, so much research with 10 years of content, 1,500 episodes with some of the top minds in the world from all, all areas of life. And there's really six things that keep us feeling limited or less than our ultimate potential or our highest self and six things that will support us if we do them that will serve us at the highest level, maximize our potential. And the six things that keep us in a powerless or limited mindset is lacking a meaningful mission. Again, not having clarity on what a meaningful mission is for us. When we don't have that, we don't know the direction, we don't know fully why. And so it's just answering those questions. And it may take some discovery, trial, error, like figuring things out. You may not know what it is right away. It may take some time. But lacking a meaningful mission is going to make you feel powerless or limited in your abilities. Second thing is being controlled by fear. You know, there's three main fears that cause us to doubt ourselves. The fear of failure, the fear of success, and the fear of people's opinions. As a content creator, Sean, I'm sure a lot of people that you talk to are creators are afraid of the comment section on what people think and say about their content. I was talking with Rick Rubin yesterday and he said, I said, do you ever get fearful around people's opinions when you put something out or when you're working with Adele or Eminem or Jay-Z and you put something out of theirs, do you ever feel fearful, fearful of the criticism? And he said, my intention, he said, no, because my goal is to make the best piece of art for the artist, not for the consumers. Because if we make something for others, and we're not proud of it, then it's kind of a failure for us. If we make something great for us and hopefully others like it, great. If they don't, at least you're proud of what you're created for you. And so learning to go beyond the ego and the fear mind of what are people going to think about me? Yes, I understand. We need to make a living. We need to like progress and perform in certain areas, but it's learning how to sit with things not always being perfect and not being fearful by that. So when we're controlled by fear, we feel limited. The third thing is being crippled by self-doubt. Again, fear and self-doubt go hand in hand. When we have self-doubt, I think self-doubt is the biggest killer of our dreams. When we doubt ourselves, it doesn't matter how much schooling, how much education, how much talent we have, it will hold us back when we doubt. And it's, I, I played against so many athletes in sports where guys were way more talented than me more athletic. But when the game was on the line, they lacked the confidence for whatever reason. And I was able to perform in certain areas, even when I wasn't as talented, because I had belief. I had confidence in me. So we got to learn how to develop that skill. The third thing is, or the fourth thing is, and most mindset books don't talk about this. And as entrepreneurs, I don't think they're going to talk about this that much. The thing that keeps us limited is when we conceal past pains. Now, I'm not saying we need to open our wounds for the world to see them, 
But when we conceal them to ourselves and we don't allow ourselves to process and heal certain pains of the past, when we're running from them, when we're hiding them, whatever it might be, it's going to make us feel limited and powerless. That pain has power over us because we cannot speak about it. So we need to be feel more comfortable about speaking about these things that have harmed us in the past. The fifth thing is being defined by the opinions of others. Again, we talked about this, but when we allow others to define us, their opinions, man, we're just going to live a limited, powerless life. And the sixth thing is when we drift towards complacency. I think, um, you know, I could easily just do the same thing every day and say, you know what? I've done really well so far. I'm, you know, I'm making money. I'm, I'm making an impact, but it's not going to make me feel inspired by doing the same thing if I'm not finding ways to grow and improve. So drifting towards complacency keeps us limited and powerless. And the greatness mindset is kind of the inverse of all those. And it's, I'll just say I'm quickly driven by a meaningful mission. I shared with you mine. I'm very clear what my meaningful mission is. It doesn't mean I don't have stress and challenges and problems. It just means at least I have a direction and that gives me guidance on how to overcome them. And it gives me guidance on how to make decisions I make decisions based on a mission, not based on my feelings. And that helps me stay on track. Second thing, turning fears into confidence. The best way to overcome your fear is to go all in on the fear until the fear disappears. It took me a, a year to overcome the fear of public speaking. I didn't do it by thinking about it. I did it by acting on it every single week, embarrassing myself, sweating, humiliating myself, and feeling the embarrassment until I realized I'm still alive. I'm okay. I can get through this and I'm improving and getting better. And that was the best part. Overcoming self-doubt. Again, when we learn to build belief in self through doing challenging things every day by being our word and being an integrity every day, we will build confidence in self. All we got to do is keep doing that consistently and you'll build an incredible stack of belief in self over time. Fourth thing is healing past pains. This is like everyone's on their own journey about this, but I love doing different therapies that support me in processing, acting on, and then integrating the healing journey. I don't care if you work with a priest, a spiritual leader, a therapist, it doesn't matter to me. Do what works for you to help you heal the wounds, the emotional and psychological wounds of our past. We all have them in different ways. Even if you had a great childhood, you still have something that maybe is holding you back. Allow yourself to process, heal, integrate the lessons so you can move on and not be held back by the past pains. Creating a healthy identity. I think a lot of people, when I talk to them, they struggle with this by creating a healthy identity. Tony Robbins talks about identity a lot. It's kind of the core foundation. If we think we are not enough, we're constantly going to feel not enough and we're going to act in not enoughness. So we need to think in ways of, I am lovable, I am enough, and we need to build that within ourselves, build the identity within ourselves and in our environment so that we have the confidence to overcome the fears and the challenges that come our way. And then taking action with a game plan. I don't know about you, Sean, how many people do you know who said, I've wanted to create a YouTube channel for five years, but I, I haven't been able to start it. Or I've been thinking about this concept for a book for 10 years. If I, if I had a nickel for every time someone said, I've wanted to write a book for 10 years, I'll be a millionaire. Because so many people want and they think about this and this idea just rots in their mind and their soul every year that they waste not working on it. When their soul is telling them, create this, and they don't do it, 
they lose confidence. We build confidence and belief by the actions. Rick Rubin said this yesterday, the producer, he's like, you've got to act and create it. It may be crap from multiple takes of making the music, the song, but that's where inspiration comes from through action, not by just thinking and analyzing. So we've got to take action with the game plan. So when you can do those six things, you step more into the greatness mindset versus a powerless mindset. It was so generous of you. That's a mini masterclass and you broke down the entire framework. And I highly recommend, of course, grab the whole book so you can master and learn um, to avoid the first six and really step into the greatness mindset. Um, as we land the plane, this is kind of a lightning round. It's called repeat after me. I say the beginning of the sentence. You just finish the sentence. Lewis, as we land the plane, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. So I'll say the sentence. You say it again because it's repeat after me. And uh, one thing I do every morning that sets me up for success that day is? One thing I do every morning that sets me up for success that day is kiss my fiance. Yeah. Um, if I was starting a YouTube channel from scratch, the first thing I would do is if I was starting a YouTube channel from scratch, the first thing I would do is hire Sean. <laughs> yes. Um, one book that has changed my life is one book that has changed my life is conversations with God. One thing business owners focus on should focus on to increase revenue is one thing business owners should focus on to increase revenue is having a high ticket um, offering and selling that offering or hiring a sales professional to sell that offering for them. One unusual daily ritual that contributes to my productivity is one unusual daily ritual that supports my productivity is playing, goofing off, dancing, jumping around, um, doing anything I can to play. One of my favorite pieces of advice after interviewing some of the world's top performers is. One of my favorite pieces of advice after interviewing some of the top performers is to learn how to fully love and accept yourself while also continuing to improve on yourself. Who told you that? Kind of like the general consensus of like what I hear, you know? Finally, if you want to make 2024 better than 2023, make sure to focus on... If you want to make 2024 better than 2023, make sure to obsess on your health, uh, all areas of your health. Make this the year that you say, I'm going to become the healthiest person in the world. Not just the healthiest person I've ever become, but the healthiest person in the world. And what would that person do? How would they think? How would they move? What would they eat? How would they measure the data and the analysis of their blood work? How would they get all the information, the support and the coaching they could to optimize their health? Where would they schedule their time differently to make sure they were focused on their health? I just truly believe that the quality of uh, the world and our relationships is going to be dependent on how well each individual takes care of their health, takes full ownership and responsibility of their thinking, their emotions, and their physical body, also their spiritual health, and just putting that all together. Because when you can take responsibility for your life, 
and put less burden on the government, the system, your community, your family, your, your partner, and take responsibility for your life. It will make your relationships better. You'll have more confidence. You'll have more belief in self. You'll be able to take on more challenging things. You'll have thicker skin when adversity hits you because you'll be doing something that is challenging daily and you'll be proud of yourself for the process. I wouldn't focus on the results of like where you wanna be, but focus on what can I do daily to be the healthiest version of me. You don't need to, you know, cut out everything in your life and just live a, you know, a life of suffering to do this. I think you still enjoy some of the richness of life and things, but really be thinking about if I was going to be the healthiest person in the world, what could I do while still having a lot of fun and uh, loving myself fully. Lewis, you've been incredibly generous uh, with over 80 minutes of value for our community. And I also want to acknowledge you. Um, you made a profound impact in my life. Uh, Years ago, I came out with John Mediana and my wife, Sonia, went to like your condo and, and you were on our channel, Video Influencers. Uh, but I'll never forget when Shalene and Brett Johnson hosted Drew Canoli from Organifi and you and so many others. We were on a chairlift together snowboarding and you were kind of coaching me about hiring and building out a team when we were just super early. I was super overwhelmed as a startup entrepreneur and, and, uh, to have you, you know, now talking years later and to think about the impact we're making here at Think Media, your influence, uh, the value, the love you add into the world, the style that you do it, um, so classy and thoughtful, um, integrity. And so really, really grateful for you. And thank you so much for taking the time. You have a packed schedule and it means the world to the Think Media community. Of course, we're going to link everything up, but please shout out anything that's going on any way that people can check out what you're doing. And uh, we will have detailed show notes so people can take action um, and benefit. I mean, uh, check out the YouTube channel, uh, just YouTube slash Lewis House, and check out The Greatness Mindset, the book. Yeah, pick up the book. It's in the show notes. Uh, 2024 can be your best year if you apply The Greatness Mindset. Thank you so much, Lewis Let's House. Let's go.